You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge lets you drive your electric vehicle on solar power with the world's first two-in-one EV charging solar inverter. Run your EV on sunshine with SolarEdge. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of The Driven, uh, which you can find at thedriven.io, which has daily updates on electric vehicle news and analysis from Australia and overseas, and also of Renew Economy, where you can find some more broader news about renewable energy and the energy transition. And I'd just like to welcome personally um, our new sponsor, Solar Edge. And it's um, fascinating to see um, solar companies and inverter companies um, moving into the electric vehicle space. And I guess that sort of signals that the transition is on. Um, certainly in Australia, we're starting to see some life in the EV market with the arrival of the Model 3, but still a long way from being mass market. But um, while Australia has been slightly slow on the uptake, there's been some companies which have been extraordinarily innovative and actually taken the lead in the world on what they've been doing. And one of those is SEA Electric, which is a Melbourne-based company which has made its business to electrify transport and particularly in trucks and freights and some other heavy machinery. And uh, not so much by reinventing the wheel, but really just adapting to existing technologies, existing designs and existing chassis and what have you. And I'm delighted to welcome um, the Managing Director of SEA Electric, Tony Fairweather. Thanks for joining the podcast, Tony. Thanks for inviting me, Giles. Good to be here. Well, look, um, let's just start with what you've been up to just recently and then sort of maybe we'll just track back the history afterwards. You've just spent four months in the US and... Um, well, from some of the stories that we've been publishing recently, you've um, struck up some good business there. Yeah, the US is a very, uh, very exciting market uh, market for, for us and and for this particular segment, primarily around its its, its volume, um, but uh, also it's uh, extremely progressive in supporting the electrification of uh, of all segments of the automotive um, space. In in some states more so than others. So. Um, we've uh, we've opened an operation in um, in California, uh, of which um, uh, there are huge um, incentives in comparison to other other countries around the world for for end customers to uh, uh, to purchase electric um, delivery and distribution vehicles, and that's the segment that we're in um, uh, globally now. We've uh, developed our our power system, our C drive power system, specifically to target the delivery and distribution vehicle. Um, segment, as I, as I mentioned, which is um, essentially any any um, uh, vehicle that can pick up or deliver you know, freight or goods or, or rubbish in, in metropolitan areas. So, yeah, back for, for after four months and uh, back over there in another six or eight weeks. <laughs> um, and you've struck some interesting deals too. I think some major ones with the likes of Ford and um, etc. Is, is that right? Yeah, Ford and um, yeah, they're associated businesses. So the the way the US market is uh, is progressing in this in this space is uh, utilising what they call um, uh, the upfitters. Um, who are, are generally large organisations that have direct ties already uh, with the uh, with the OEMs like like Ford, um, and those upfitters generally do the customising of of these products, fit the the, the boxes, uh, change the audio visual stuff, but 
tow bars and second steering wheels and whatever whatever is required. So, in the case of um, of, of Ford, we've got uh, a relationship with um, uh, two of their their strategic upfitters, uh, the Detroit chassis plant, which is producing their uh, F59. Uh, step van products uh, and we've got our, our first unit just been delivered to UPS um, in um, in Livonia to, uh, which is Detroit to undergo um, significant testing and, and trialing uh, and then we've got a, another company in um, in Detroit known as uh, as Roush um, uh, Roush Cleantech uh, who are producing um, three different uh, Ford models in, in their operations and their facilities, uh, uh, also in, in Livonia, actually, very, uh, very close by to, uh, uh, to, to UPS. Uh, and they're producing the F650, uh, F, uh, the F750, and uh, E450 e uh, cutaway chassis. I suppose we better explain exactly what it is that you do then. So basically what you do is you take these sort of um, the, these, these mass production um, trucks and um, in this case it's Ford and I think in previously it's been with Isuzu in, in Australia. But basically before they get too far down the production line, you take the chassis and then you basically adapt it to, and, and, and fit your drive system on with all the batteries. And as you've just sort of mentioned, you change maybe some of the steering and some of the visuals and things like that. Is that, is that, is that rather too simplistic a summary and maybe you can add to that no that pretty pretty much sums it up so we, we've developed a, a power system as we refer to it known as C drive um, that uh, is adaptable across the GVM categories of let's say let's call it the truck distribution um, space so when you remove an engine and a gearbox from a already existing OEM platform um, you not only remove the ability to drive that, that vehicle forward and backwards, but uh, you remove the um, air conditioning capability, a heating capability, power steering, uh, all runs off an internal combustion engine. Um, the brakes, uh, in, in the case of a, you know, an air, um, air brake system, the air compressor or vacuum pumps, if it's a hydraulic system, uh, all, gets, all gets removed. So we've developed a, a fully integrated system that will replace all of that and operate off the high-voltage batteries. So at the once it's electrified, the product, as it was existing, looks exactly the same fundamentally as it was as an internal combustion engine, and it operates essentially fund fundamentally the same. It achieves the same sort of performance, um, a suitable duty cycle for that particular particular product, uh, its weights are a little heavier than um, a traditional internal combustion engine, um, and uh, we've really focused on uh, on getting the total cost of ownership uh, or the economic model right uh, to be able to achieve the outcome. So the glider platform, as it's called, gets produced, and in some cases, it's actually finished new vehicle that has the engine and, and gearboxes removed, and they're repurposed by the uh, either the dealer or the OEM. And we provide the um, uh, the C drive power system to be able to electrify that in in with with volume potential to do that. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned total cost of ownership, and I guess that's the way that people will be thinking about truck ownerships because you don't sort of buy it and then just sort of let it sort of waste away. You, um, most would be on leasing vehicles, and, and and that's the way that most fleets are operated. Um, how are you going on the total cost of ownership? It's a really important element. We we had what we we deemed to be the disadvantage of uh, developing um, this this system and this technology over the last three or four years 
in in Australia. And I say a disadvantage because it was obvious back then, and it's still obvious now, that there is a limited um, um, incentives. Uh, in fact, um, pretty much nothing for uh, for end customers in this uh, in this space. So we knew the only way we could commercialise in Australia was develop a technology that had a um, um, a payback period or a break-even period on the premium of the electrified platform uh, that was, was suitable for a, uh, you know, a, a company that has um, shareholders and stakeholders uh, to deem being economically viable. Now, we, we saw that as around that five-year break-even period. So a premium up front, um, but then through operating cost savings um, to be able to uh, pull that, um, that premium back within a five-year period of time and then after that for that to be cream on top. Now, in the other six countries that we're in, um, or the other five countries outside of Australia, all of those have incentives that are now enable us to bring that um, that that break-even point right down. And in the case of of the US and some of the markets, you're, we're lower cost than an internal combustion engine before we um, uh, before we start. Is that right? Um, and, and, and I guess when, when people do leases on trucks and things like that, I mean, what sort of time frame are they talking about anyway? I mean, how significant is it to have a five-year payback? I mean, do the leases normally happen in four, five or eight-year um, time frames? Yeah, most, most lease terms are in that four to five year. And, and most companies are, uh, that are running a commercial product are, are wanting to have a, um, a, you know, a fleet life of uh, you know, seven, seven, eight, nine years. So um, to have something paid back in that five-year period of time is, um, is, is no issue from an economic or a, a business case perspective. But there yeah. is still that uncertainty and needing to be able to convey and prove that to uh, purchasing um, you know, managers and fleet managers that that's actually going to be achieved. So in the early days, there's a, a, a fair amount of, um, of of education that our sales team uh, have to uh, embark on. <laughs> and how's that going? It's a bit of a cultural shift, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, I just uh, I took a bit of a V8 fan out for a driving an electric vehicle yesterday, and um, look, you know, he was very doubtful and very sceptical. So I actually gave him. Let him have a drive, and he was asking about the gear shifting and things like that. I'm going, no, mate, no. Um, just think about it. It's <laughs> no gears, <laughs> and yeah, he sounded yeah. very skeptical about the whole thing. But when he um, when he pushed the accelerator down as we we're going up a hill, we went, uh huh. That doesn't happen in my V8. Yeah. Um, so um, so how are you going with that sort of cultural shift with the uh, with the buyers? Yeah, key key element for us is to um, is to allow that the, the buyers and the operators to touch and feel, and to start talking to some of our customers that have had product for, you know, for for, for going on a couple of years now. Um, but uh, yeah, much like your experience with your V8 um, uh, uh, guy, uh, it's similar with uh, with truck drivers. Um, often quite sceptical before they get into an electric truck, uh, but they they get converted pretty uh, pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, and the the companies themselves, the operators, once uh, it doesn't take them long to actually determine the um, uh, the operating cost cost benefits, um, and get positive feedback from customers and, and their customers on um, on delivering product in in electric vehicles. So, who are some of your final customers then um, in Australia and um, and perhaps overseas? Australia, it's um, it's customers like Woolworths and uh, uh, and Kings. We've got a, a fairly substantial um, uh, following now in the um, uh, rubbish truck industry. So we have a, a partnership with a Queensland-based um, um, rubbish truck body manufacturer known as Superior Pack, uh, and uh, through their network, um, 
uh, we've been able to uh, to get access to some some big companies, the likes of CleanAway, uh, who have a few of our um, few of our vehicles now. Um, as does um, uh, Suez have got their, their first products being delivered. Um, in New Zealand, in, in Viro Waste was one of our first rubbish uh, rubbish truck um, uh, manufacturers, uh, um, customers to take product. They've got one of the oldest uh, of our electric rubbish trucks, um, uh, a Hino, a GH, that's been in service for, for two and a half years and have ordered significant um, another significant volume of uh, of trucks and waste management in um, uh, in um, um, uh, Melbourne is also a a, a customer. So quite a, a significant uh, spread of uh, of customers. And overseas, as I mentioned, UPS have now got products. Staples, uh, which is like Officeworks in the uh, in the US, have uh, have products. And we've we've just got a letter of intent for our. Our first triple-figure order, so that's a hundred units for um, uh, in the US for California deployment. Congratulations! Do we know who the customer is? It's a customer called Zeem. Um, so it's one of those uh, one of those companies that um, not well known, but they are a um, they uh, are purchasing and specialising in the EV commercial vehicle space, and then on leasing those products to, um, uh, to other customers. Mm. And what sort of vehicles are we talking about there? Because you'll do, you do a variety of, I mean, the delivery trucks come in, delivery vans come in all sorts of sizes. So what are the smaller ones that you're doing and up to what sort of size? You mentioned a couple of sort of, you know, F-59s or whatever they were, but that doesn't really mean much to me. Sort of if you can just sort of maybe in size a sort of number of wheels or tons or whatever a convenient description would be. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, our power system uh, is adapted across uh, two, two different van product um, models, which are split by wheelbase, and, and that pretty much covers the um, um, uh, Toyota Hiace-style product, Ford Transit-style product, and, uh, and potentially the um, Mercedes Sprinter-style style product. And then when we get into the cab chassis range, we start at that smaller four-and-a-half-ton uh, Isuzu or, or Hino product, um, so the um, NNR, it's referred to in Australia, the NNR model, um, uh, moving into the uh, NPR, um, N- NLR also in, uh, in New Zealand. And from a Hino perspective, it's 616, 617. Um, we then move up through the, um, uh, through the, the chassis, um, chassis GVW into the kind of 7.5 tonne and then up to 9 tonne, uh, which is into the NPR Type, uh, type model, so the Isuzu NPR, in fact the Isuzu NPR we have built in um, five countries now uh, and just building the um, the first um, uh, unit for Israel actually, which will be um, uh, R100 compliant, which gives us the full European battery compliance uh, to be able to launch that particular power system, that's what we refer to as the C-Drive 100, uh, into the European market. We're also we're also satisfying R100 with our our van um, power system product, what we, we refer to as the C-Drive 70, um, which uh, we will also uh, launch into Europe, most likely on the Ford Transit uh, product, which we're, we're building in the US as well. And and for, is, is there a sweet spot amongst all of those different sort of size vans? You know, is it, does it work better? I mean, do, do the economics work better in a smaller size or a bigger size, or is it kind of consistent right through? Yeah, interestingly, the, without incentives, the economics kind of work better at the top end, so your rubbish trucks working down. Um, so the, the rubbish trucks 
as an example, because of the regenerative braking and the, and the likes uh, that you experience in the in the electric car space, Giles, the um, a heavy duty rubbish truck is start stopping so much as an internal combustion engine. Um, they're generally replacing brake lining uh, every every three months. Now that oldest rubbish truck I referred to in New Zealand, the, um, the GH, which is two and a half years old, has not had a set of brake linings replaced as yet, which is quite an expensive maintenance item. They're also seeing improved tyre wear as well as not needing to use any diesel and, uh, and uh, the other you know, maintenance items around engines and gearboxes and oils and filters has all disappeared. So at that top end, the annual operating cost savings are greater than they are in a lighter duty product at the smaller end. From a duty cycle perspective, I, I, I think the, the technology fits uh, better from that, that van up to around the... Um, uh, Probably the the 15, 16 ton type type range. When you get into the rubbish trucks, uh, without uh, without gearboxes in them, um, there can be some challenges around gradeability. But it's all about compromise when it comes to a commercial vehicle. You know, there's mm. three key areas that need to be looked at: the cost, the weight, uh, and achieving the duty cycle. Mm. And every time you impact on one of those, you lose um, lose out on the others. I'm just actually just out of my own curiosity, just thinking about some of those smaller vans. And um, look, I've got a few surfing buddies who drive vans around and they're all sort of diesel or petrol or what have you. Um, if, the, if you're using it for sort of private use and um, just sort of fascinating thinking um, of um, one of those electric, uh, one of those things going electric, um, what um, what would it mean for a private user um, in the sense of sort of upfront cost and, um, and, and payback time? To be honest, our, our key focus is on fleets because yep. of the you know, the ability to deploy in volume, the, the and, fact and that, use in volume too. I'd imagine ab- absolutely, and also from a duty cycle perspective, you know, the challenge with the private use area is the unknown in terms of the, the the duty cycle, the range, what you need to do that day. If you're going surfing, how far do I need to go that day? With where with um, in deployment in in fleets that have fundamentally fixed routes. Um, it is it is very easy to ensure that the power system has been um, uh, developed and is suitable for that particular uh, cycle. So you have confidence and that the fleets and the drivers have confidence in their ability to head out, um, achieve a full um, uh, full duty cycle on a single charge, so not having to worry about uh, charging throughout the day, and then come back to the same location that the tra- the, the the van or the truck gets parked uh, parked up in effectively every night and either use our onboard charger that's provided with the vehicle and plug into standard three-phase 32-amp power. So again, eliminating that complexity around uh, off-board fast charging and and the things that you need when it becomes private use. Um, but we also do provide a, um, a power distribution unit with the vehicle that enables fast charging, so you to, to be able to use the fast charging network uh, up to 120 kilowatts uh, if, if required. Hmm. And just going back to something you said about the um, the bigger trucks and the fact that the air brakes are sort of um, you know sort of um, uh, come with the internal combustion engine. So am I right in thinking then that with an electric um, with an electric drivetrain, then you don't actually have that air brakes, and therefore the noise of the braking as you're coming into towns, you constantly see signs outside sort of small towns and highways saying no air brakes, please. Um, is that eliminated by this? Um, no, unfortunately not. That the braking system stays uh, stays as is. 
um, but the um, uh, the air compressor that is on that uh, that would be generally operated off the internal combustion engine gets replaced with a an equivalent that uh, that operates off the uh, off the electrics off the batteries. But with the regenerative braking that I referred to, the amount of use of the brakes is eliminated substantially. So subsequently, the noise is eliminated uh, or reduced substantially because the traditional brakes are not used as as much. Now an example of that is a now, let's say again a rubbish truck um, uh, driving along a, um, you know, a metropolitan um, main road at 60 kilometres an hour. Uh, driver sees the lights um, uh, in uh, up in in front uh, turning orange, uh, so he he or she will take their foot off the accelerator. Now at that time, uh, in a internal combustion engine, uh, often an, an exhaust brake might come on. Um, to start slowing the vehicle down. Now, where in our case, uh, we actually start applying negative torque to the electric motor, which starts pulling the truck up without any noise. It doesn't use the, the braking system, the air brakes at all. Then when the driver wants to pull up further, he or she starts deploying the brake. And similarly, we just start applying more negative torque to the motor. Um, again, um, applying, uh, pulling the truck up, and at the same time, the motor becomes a generator and starts feeding energy into the battery. So we start topping the batteries up, but still not using the traditional brakes at all. Now, only when the driver needs to pull the truck up completely do they step through the first part of the brake pedal de uh, de displacement or deployment. Um, will they then use the uh, traditional service brakes through the air compressor? Uh, into the braking system. So with that, the braking of or the use of the air brakes or you know, vacuum or hydraulic brakes in, um, uh, in uh, a smaller vehicle uh, is reduced substantially. Hmm. You um, um, have announced a, a significant deal recently with the Victorian government to set up headquarters in um, the Latrobe Valley, um, you know, factories and, um, you know, employing up to 250 people. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and, and where, you are, where you are at with those plans? Yeah, yeah, sure can. Um, so not not a headquarters down there, but further um, uh, further assembly facility. So a much larger uh, assembly facility than uh, what we've got in Dandenong. The intention is to retain Dandenong as our our global head office. As I mentioned, we've now got um, uh, operations in in New Zealand, in um, uh, in Thailand, so Auckland, Thailand. Um, uh, Vienna, which is uh, what we'll leverage off next year as, um, uh, as we get the R100 compliance, um, and, uh, and the US in, uh, in Los Angeles. Um, but um, Dandenong is where our technical uh, head office will retain, uh, and we'll have engineers uh, deployed into all of those, uh, all of those locations, including the, the Latrobe Valley as, uh, as the facilities get, uh, get up and running. We've currently got, I think we've got around 25 um, uh, Latrobe Valley employees employed in, in Dandenong, so our, our head office, they, they currently commute um, and in fact will be commuting in the very near future in a, uh, an electric shuttle bus, it's, uh, it's close enough to do that, uh, do that, com that commute, um, one that we've produced. Um, so we're, uh, we're we we are getting um, very close to um, uh, to finalising plans for the uh, for the building uh, down there. We've got some very exciting um, uh, programs uh, on the way uh, through through Dandenong and 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 elsewhere that um, will deliver the um, uh, the volume assembly that's required for the Latrobe Valley. 
Um, and yeah, the two two fifty is our um, our, our target. But if um, you know if, if all goes to plan with the the, the, the projects that are, I can't disclose at the moment, um, then um, we should be able to exceed that. Fantastic news. And look, if, if your sort of wish list um, of, you, know, I mean, you mentioned before that there are basically no incentives in Australia and, um, and so it's a bit of a tougher sort of, you know, making, making things meet. I mean, what would you like to see in the Australian market? I mean, are things required or is it just a matter of infrastructure or is it just a matter of just sort of having some sort of supportive stance from either the federal or the state government? Um, do we need incentives or do we just need a plan? It's a really good question. I think I think uh, one of the, one of the key challenges in this segment is um, is is as we, we discussed before is the the, the fleet fleet managers uh, who have often been in you know the internal combustion engine fleet space for many many years, uh, and the purchasing uh, the purchasing teams, their ability to to um, understand the technology and gain confidence in it really requires them to deploy initial. We call them pilots, so initial trials. Now, New Zealand have um, have introduced a program which I think would be extremely successful in Australia because it has been there. Um, it's been funded and supported by um, the ECA division uh, of, of government, the environmental um, uh, division. Um, and it's essentially funding for um, first deployments or first charging infrastructure or first, um, you know, uh, Fleets of um, of cars into into companies um, with a fifty fifty share between um, uh, New Zealand government and um, uh, and and the the operator. So you essentially get a you know half price rubbish truck or um, a half price um, you know, delivery vehicle or van or you know a couple of um, a couple of um, fleet cars for sales guys uh, as part of the program. It's a very simple program. Um, they roll it out every three three months with a certain allocation of, of funding, um, and as much as it's competitive, it, it's a very simple process to say, "Hey, this is my company. This is my interest. Uh, here's a quote for a couple of vehicles. Um, can you can you fund it?" And you only you only get that first um, first chance to be able to get some funding. But what it means is that you can get those first products and those first deployments into into fleet, so they can truly understand. The economics, the duty cycle challenges, that, that total cost of ownership, the weights, the charging, the feedback from the drivers, etc. And from those ones and twos that have gone into New Zealand, we've now got customers buying fives and tens um, at at full noise without the need for, for funding because they know the economics from that first one. It de-risks the purchasing and it enables them, it enables them to bring forward that initial purchasing. So I think that would be a, a really good program for, for Australia. There is a need to, to incentivise the end customer um, to be able to fast track the uptake. Where do you see the industry, the trucking industry being in say five or ten years time? I mean we sometimes hear that um, batteries won't make it for big trucks um, and there's talk about hydrogen alternatives. Um, how quickly do you think, um, I mean what do you see as the major competitors and the major threats? I mean you know we often hear something about the um, the Tesla truck and I guess that's for sort of even bigger ones, B-doubles and things like that. I don't know whether to what extent you see them as a sort of a complementary to, to your fleet or, or as a competitor. W what do you see in five, ten years time do you see the truck trucking fleet essentially being um, well? It might mean not be completely decarbonised, but it might be well on the way by then. Um, how do you see it playing out? 
Yeah, I think the, the space that we're in, and again, I'm referring to delivery vehicles around metropolitan areas, as opposed to Tesla with their prime mover where they're looking at interstate um, uh, type elements. Um, I think the segment we're in will absolutely be 100% electric over the next five to, five to 10 years. Uh, wow, there that's is, remarkable. There, sorry? That's remarkable. Yeah, and I, I, I think the OEMs you know, realise that now. Um, yeah, the cost of the, the batteries has reduced uh, much more quickly than anyone anticipated. The density of the batteries has increased much more quickly than anyone anticipated. So the, the ability to achieve, the, you know, as I said, the costs and the weights um, and the, the duty cycles is there now. So the OEMs, um, you know, being the, uh, you know, the, the Japanese and the Europeans and the Americans, have now got this challenge where they are um, substantially um, um, founded around the internal combustion engine. That they've they've got some substantial disruption ahead of them with uh, with restructuring um, and uh, and getting you know their own um, technology into into play whilst whilst working out what to do with engine manufacturing facilities um, and and restructuring servicing. You know, when you lose an internal combustion engine in a gearbox, suddenly you lose a lot of revenue from um, uh, from a service perspective. So. Um, the transition is there. The transition is there to stay. Uh, I think uh, in answer to your question about hydrogen, I think there's a place for, for hydrogen, but probably in range extended technology, um, when you get into the, the the rubbish trucks that might need to do further distances uh, and higher, you know, into your interstate work and also the um, uh, the, the route buses, the transit buses around town, uh, where there's simply not enough real estate on them to be able to get enough batteries in at this stage and their duty cycles are longer um, longer um, distances and longer hours so I think that you know, hybrid if you like or hydrogen style uh, electric technology will, will fall into place there but I reiterate this segment absolutely 100% electric over the next 5 to 10 years That's remarkable and, and, and really really delightful to hear I mean it's interesting what you said then about the sort of the service part of the business because a lot of that has been you know a major part and I guess we're seeing that in the uh, the OEMs, the car makers, and the way they're thinking about things differently. Um, I guess the answer to that is for you to actually sort of put more things into your system that breaks, sort of built-in redundancy, as it were. I think, <laughs> I don't think it's probably not really what you want to do, but um, it might make them happy. But um, I'm just wondering if, as they, as these OEMs and these big car, uh, truck and car makers are making this transition to electric, does that mean they still rely on your drivetrain technologies, or do they start developing their own? And and where do you see yourself in this transition? which is no longer sort of 1% or 2% electric, but, you know, 50 to 100% electric? Yeah, I think we play a fairly fairly substantial role in, in, in supporting and, and, and uh, helping um, uh, OEMs or upfitters with the, uh, with, with the transition. Um, uh, there's no doubt uh, uh, OEMs will, will develop uh, some of their own and have already started to develop some of, some of their own. But this, this market is huge and there's plenty of room for uh, OEM technology and our technology and other third-party um, third technologies to, um, uh, to be able to make, uh, make uh, this, uh, this transition. Hmm. And you've got some other vehicles as well. I think um, just um, a week or so ago, you announced your first um, electric cherry picker. And um, I suppose in that sort of machinery, there's nothing which can't be electric. No, that's right. We're, we're, our engineers have spent quite a bit of time developing um, effective and efficient ways to electrify any hydraulic um, uh, or um, um, you know, refrigeration unit or the likes uh, on the uh, from a body perspective. So it's important that um, you know, the body body manufacturers 
um, realise that they can electrify their their systems on the back of uh, on, on the back of a uh, of a truck. And again, that becomes an education element. But also, it's important for um, for our, our sales guys to be able to provide information on the hardware that's required for them to to use, which is you know, generally some form of inverter or an electric motor to electrify the hydraulics. Um, and simplify that as much as possible. So we're very much focused on on ensuring our our power system can be adapted uh, quite quite easily into um, into OEM platforms and uh, integrate quite easily into um, any sort of uh, of um, uh, body platform that is on the back, whether it's hydraulics for. Uh, for rubbish trucks and uh, um, the elevated work platform. Now, the comment I'll make on the, the third-party um, you know, uh, power system, independent power system provision is we see a very substantial opportunity for electrifying relatively young aftermarket product for a five- to seven-year period of time to help fast-track uh, that transition to full electrification in metropolitan areas. And the U.S. have acknowledged that because their incentive programs, primarily in California and New York at the moment, don't only focus on new product. They also provide substantial incentives for big fleets um, to remove engines and gearboxes from relatively young um, um, fleets, um, so you know, in that four to six-year-old um, uh, product, um, and, and electrify that. So being, a again, an independent third-party supplier gives us the ability to do that. Fantastic. And, and, and what sort of, in, in Australia, if everything went electric in, in delivery vans, I mean, what sort of size fleet are we talking about? Is it in the sort of the thousands and tens of thousands of vehicles? Sorry, what do you, what do you mean by, by that, Charles? Oh, well, you, you, you mentioned that de- the delivery fleet could be fully electric within five or ten years. I'm just wondering just sort of what sort of you know, number of vehicles we're we talking about roughly. Yeah, well, in the case of Australia, a big, big fleet in Australia is, is you know, kind of 800 or 1,000 a a thousand units. Um, UPS, who we've just deployed our, our first product with in Livonia, um, have 280,000 vehicles. Uh, Penske have got 320,000. Um, Ryder have 220,000. Uh, this is just in the US alone. <laughs> There's some <laughs> so, potential out there. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. It's some, um, some big, big product. But you know, even the likes of um, um, we've got a, a customer in uh, northwestern uh, US. They're called Bimbo Bakery. I'd never heard of them before before I got to the uh, to the US, but they're actually a Mexican company, um, and they've got around fifty or sixty thousand trucks in in their fleet uh, across North America, Canada, uh, US, and, um, and and Mexico in particular, but also some other Spanish um, speaking regions, uh, including Spain itself, um, and um, yeah, they've got a, a huge amount of. Um, uh, of interest in in electrifying and leveraging off the electrification from an environmental perspective, even while product is more expensive than diesel, um, in some of those developing you know, countries like uh, like Mexico and some of the other um, uh, South mm. American countries. So it's uh, it's quite interesting that those that um, uh, that are really progressing with this. Well, Tony Weather from um, SEA Electric, um, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, thanks very much for joining the Driven Podcast and um, the best of luck for the future. Thanks very much, Charles. Really appreciate your time. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by SolarEdge, 
SolarEdge EV chargers combine solar energy and grid power to charge your electric vehicle up to four times faster than a standard wall charger. Whether you own an EV now or want to be EV ready, future-proof your home with SolarEdge. Visit solaredge.com slash AUS and drive your solar further.